What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Here at Rachel's World, we consider listening an essential literacy skill because it is one of those things that we do to interact and communicate with the world we live in. When it comes to applying the literacy skills of listening, one of the most important things we have to focus on is active listening. Active listening is different from just listening or what we might call passive listening in very important ways. First and foremost, it means that we bring our full attention to the conversation and that we try to understand the complete message that is being given. When we are actively listening, we give off both verbal and nonverbal signals to the speaker that we are listening. As the listener, we do things like question, offer reinforcement signals verbally, respectfully repeat back information as we see it, and we remember what is being said. We also smile, keep eye contact, nod our heads, and have a posture that shows we are focused on the speaker. Active listening is essential to all good communication, and it is an especially important leadership skill. So for their immediate and long-term development, learning how to engage in active listening is really important for children. There are certainly children that are going to have a harder time with active listening as we understand it. For example, children with autism really struggle to make eye contact with people. So that nonverbal indicator of active listening may or may not be present even if the child really is listening. So sometimes we have to realize that what we think active listening looks like may not be something a person can give. But even with these differences, we can focus on active listening skills that work best in whatever situation our child needs to master. Especially if nonverbal cues are a challenge, focusing on how to ask questions of a speaker or how to respond with respect are skills we can all work on. So let's practice these skills with our kids as we talk and listen together as a family. And let's be active listeners ourselves as we model good behavior, because here at Rachel's World, we know a little more active listening is important for our literacy. Where do stories come alive? In movies? Yes. And before movies, there were books. And before that, on papyrus and parchment. And before that, around prehistoric campfires. But now... We're in the digital age. Stories come alive in computers, and as it happens, they thrive in the world of computer games. Our first guest, author, artist, and video game director, Dustin Hansen, talks to Rachel about the story aspect of computer games that began in the arcades and has now come to our computers and consoles. Hansen is author of the book, Game On! Video Game History from Pong and Pac-Man to Mario, Minecraft, and more. He's been creating media for the middle grader MG audience for more than 20 years. Dustin Hansen has worked as a creative director for some of the biggest video game products on the planet, including Madden Football, The Sims, and Hasbro's most popular franchises. He's also author of the fiction series Microsaurs. Here's Rachel and Dustin Hansen. We're in studio with Dustin today. Welcome. Thank you. To start off, just kind of give us a general idea of how would you equate gaming and playing games with the issue of storytelling? There's kind of three big camps when it comes to storytelling in games. 
the big one is kind of the obvious one. It's it's playing a movie. I mean, that's the best way to for me to kind of describe that. And that's some of the games that kind of started off with maybe some of the early Lara Croft Tomb Raider games where uh, you know, you know that that's a story. Um and those those that genre has really continued. There's a lot of those that are still like massive big time big budget projects. Um Uncharted is one of my all-time favorite game series. And it is storytelling. And it's pretty directed. And when we look back at the original roots of that, it does go back to a really, really early, uh, actually even probably before games, where it's the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Um, and uh, the game that kind of capitalized that was a game called Zork. And a long time ago, many, many moons ago, which is a text-based game, which would present a problem and then give you – you'd kind of have to try to figure out how to solve those problems. Um, it's super satisfying. It hits it hits a lot of people kind of square in the heart. It hits me. That's kind of some of the type of games I like to play. But there's there are other camps. Uh, the the other one to me is what I would call creative story storytelling or, or self storytelling. Like the the game player kind of tells the story, and those games have been happening for a long time too. And if I was going to say where that kind of started, um, that I would say that those were games like Space Invaders. If I'm going to go all the way back, right? So the interesting thing about Space Invaders, and I know a lot of people know that game. If nothing else, you've seen the art from it. It's everywhere. It's become a lexicon for gaming. Um, really, the interesting thing is there was no story, right? The, the closest thing to a story was if you went to, a, to an arcade and they had an actual arcade machine. It had a, a painting on the side. And you're like, oh, those are the monsters that come down from the sky. That's why I'm shooting these ships. But really what it became was you you ended up imagining what that story really was. I'm saving Earth or I'm going to another planet to blast, you know, like whatever. It, it really became a very self-told story. And those games did con- kind of continue, uh, uh, really continue. There's a lot of that that gameplay still happening. And and to me, even though it's kind of a, a circuitous path, but that did turn into Minecraft, right? That I'm building my own story. I've been given a problem and a, a set of tools, and I'm going to use that set of tools to solve the problem in my own manner. So non-directed storytelling. Um, and some people have used the term emergent play, which is also kind of a good way to explain that, right? Like, I don't really know what the game is until I play it, and then it, it kind of just shows up. And then the third type of storytelling that really happens in games happens in what people think of of gaming kind of gaming cultures, and, and that's online competitive gaming. So that's your shooters like Call of Duty and, and Overwatch is a, is a good one, right? So the way I've kind of best tried to describe this to people who aren't gamers is the story there is really water cooler talk. It's we play the game. All kinds of crazy stuff happens. And then while the next one's loading or while we have a break or when we're done, we all stand around the proverbial water cooler and say, do you remember when you know, so-and-so did this and when this happened and, and all those kinds of things? So the story kind of happens after the game has happened. So we do see those type of storytellings in different medium. We definitely see the movie style stuff, right? That's a very traditional path to storytelling um, where – we have a defined end. We want the user to get to this glorious end because it's been so well crafted by the writers of the game that you want to experience it. It's almost a little bit more voyeuristic than the others. But what games has really done a lot to innovate is in that emergent side of things or in that water cooler side of things where the players themselves really do become the story. And, and that is such a fulfilling process for a big section of people that – they want to be the storyteller. Um, and, and I've seen that like 
I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years that said, find out that I wrote, write books. Oh, I've always wanted to write a book, right? It's so common. And that, that type of gaming really itches that, that desire for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people who spend hours and hours and hours playing those games really are crafting their own stories in a lot of different ways. That sense of that kind of primal need to, to tell stories, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, is really interesting because a lot of the storytelling is stuff we just consume, right? We read a book or mm-hmm. we watch a movie or we watch a television show. And that that's really – while we consume it, we don't really participate in it. And I think that's one of the things that gaming, like you said, kind of takes it to the next level. So is that really a, a niche that gaming has provided for us? Yeah, I think so. I really do think so. It's it's not a new niche, right? Like people have been telling campfire stories for thousands of years, and that's very similar, right? Like you tell a little bit, I'll tell a little bit. Um, after I've heard your story, I'm going to change it and tell it to someone else, right? Like that that verbal storytelling is definitely kind of that same mechanic, if you will. Um, but yeah, I think that it is definitely something that games have opened up a brand new way of storytelling. I, I remember um, – I've been writing for a long time too. It's something I've you know fell in love with 15 years ago and, and couldn't stop. Um, but I remember early on, 15 years ago, hearing people saying, "Well, there was books, then there was radio, and that changed how stories were told. Then there was TV, and then there was film, and you know, like what's next?" And I don't know how many times I've heard, "That's it, like we're done." <laughs> um, yeah, there's plenty of ways and opportunities to change those mechanics and those mediums to make them fresh forever. We're never going to run out of good film and good you know, books and we're never going to run out of those things. Um, but that what's next is already here in gaming and it is because of that. It becomes a very participatorial experience. I love this sense of the the differences between the two. So maybe talk a little bit about how you approach it differently. If you're telling a story as a game – or doing that kind of participatory storytelling where you're creating an environment for people to play in. How is that different from like you're writing when you're writing a story? Are there different ways you approach that or different techniques that you use to make that a different experience? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you, you really can't write a book without plot. You have to have a story. You have to have that directed experience for the reader. Um, but you can do a video game without plot. But the best way to do that is to provide the user the tools to create the plot themselves. And to keep coming back to Minecraft, um, it's a beautiful example of that where they've said, here's a rich world. Here are all the building blocks to build the world. And then they said, here are all the tools to play around in that world. We'll give you a couple of rules and all those rules come in the, in the form of conflict Right? If you stay up during the night, we're going to bring creepers. They're going to ruin your game. That's the conflict. Um, and it gets more complex. But the fascinating thing is taking a story like that and seeing what's happened in literature with Minecraft. There are hundreds of Minecraft books published. There are thousands of self-published stories on, on every, in every different form you can imagine of how Users, players who've played Minecraft have built these rich, complex stories because they were given a great setting, great tools, and a great conflict. And that's all they needed to tell the story. One of the things I also see is kind of the visual element to it as well. 
there seems to be a different kind of element of the visual nature to this. And as an artist approaching the video game experience, <laughs> how is that different than maybe like illustrating a graphic novel or illustrating a picture book or something like that? How, how do those visual elements differ? When I illustrate a children's book, for example, or you know, my, my personal series that I'm working on, I use images to replace content. Right, so it's kind of a complex thing to kind of deal with, and the best way is to go to the cliche: a picture's worth a thousand words, right? And I find myself a lot of times when I write, I'll write, and then I will be able to very literally delete the thousand words and say, "I can handle this in an image," and and whether or not that's those thousand words or not, exact thousand words, the concept is there, right? So the the images inside the books that I create are not only supportive. Which they are. They're supportive to continue the story, but quite often they're to show the like background details that that I don't want to write because it's it's a little too either too flowery or too much you know too too heavy too many words. Um, so that's kind of how the, the book world, how I approach the book world, and, and I'm sure there's as many different answers to that as there are author illustrators. Um, but from the gaming standpoint, the the imagery that supports there almost takes the exact opposite role, right? The imagery needs to be the bulk of the storytelling because aside, you know, from, since Zork, when we used to have to read our books, right, like as soon as we got to the point where we could use graphics that were compelling enough, um, written language has reduced in a gaming world. We just don't see it as much. We don't have to read as much. So a lot of that storytelling has to happen through good visual support. So, yeah, a lot of it is just bulk, as much art as I can possibly throw at a problem until we have a solution. And then you refine and, and build. So probably once again, similar to writing. <laughs> Write lots of words, edit, get some feedback, edit more, get some more feedback, throw it away, start over, write more words. Like, you know, that type of creative process is really similar for art, games, writing, music, you know, production. Uh, that creative process is very similar. That is a wonderful note to end on. I Really appreciate your thoughts today to help us delve into this wonderful world of gaming and storytelling and the complexities that that are there. It really is a unique world that tells us unique stories and allows us to participate in them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Author, artist, and video game director Dustin Hansen talking about the story aspect of computer games and how they can give us the opportunity to solve problems and create our own story. Next, where do good ideas for books come from? Rachel explores the issue with Annette Lyon, a USA Today best-selling author, a five-time Best of State medalist for novels and short stories in Utah, and a Whitney Award winner. She's had success as a professional editor for newspapers and magazines, as well as in technical writing. But her first love has always been writing fiction. She's author of over a dozen books, including Band of Sisters, A Chocolate Cookbook, A Grammar Guide, and is one of the four co-authors of the Newport Ladies Book Club series. Here's Rachel and Annette Lyon. We're in studio with Annette today. Welcome, Annette. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Annette, you are a writer, and you have been writing for a very long time. And one of the things I like to ask writers is just a little bit about their process, because I think that's really helpful for our listeners to kind of see how different writers do it. So to start out, tell us a little bit just generally about what your writing process is. How, how do you get started on something new, maybe? 
that's a huge question because I'm usually working on several things at once. Um, oftentimes I'm researching one story and then drafting another and then editing another and whatever. Um, but oftentimes for me, I get an idea often based on setting. The more I research a location, then suddenly characters will just like come to me as I'm blow drying my hair. Um, weird things like that. I've had times, and that's especially if I'm researching historical eras, because I can't write about, I don't know what the stories would be. I don't know what the characters' conflicts will be until I know where they lived and what their thoughts and lives were like. So oftentimes, the more I research something, um, the more the characters literally will show up and tell, give me a line of dialogue in my head or something like that. And then I have to go, okay. Who is she and what did she mean by that and and figure that kind of thing out. And a lot of people tend to divide writers into two camps, the those who outline strictly and then those who fly by the seat of their pants, nicknamed pantsers. <laughs> I like that. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think there really is actually um, a one or the other. It's really a broad spectrum because I can't outline every tiny detail. I know people who do 50-page outlines before writing a novel, and that blows my mind. I, I can't imagine doing that. But I also can't imagine sitting down with no clue of what's going to happen next. Um, so I, what I need, I'm kind of in the middle. I probably lean a little more toward the outlining side. I, I would call the plotter side because I don't have an outline per se. But I need to know where I'm starting, where I'm ending up, and several major landmarks in between. So I know... I know I'm going to get from A to B to C to E. I don't know how I'm going to get from A to B. And as I'm writing it, I go, oh, that's why she did this. And now I learned this thing from her childhood or or whatever it is. And I go back and fill in those details. But I love Scrivener. That's one of the, one of the best tools for jumping around and finding things. And Well, that is yeah. a great tool. And I don't know if yeah. our listeners know much about it. So describe what it is for them. Scrivener is a powerful tool specifically for writing. Um, and it's not it's, – it's a word processor, but it's so much more too. So if you like doing the note card thing or writing a scene per note card and shifting them around, they have a, a note card mode. You can drag and drop your scenes different directions. You can color code things. You can mark them. These little stamps that are like so um, satisfying to say done or first draft or, you know, whatever it needs – whatever – for me, it's been useful to color code different chapters. I can You can't hold a whole book in your head at one time. And they have this really fun – it's a little bell and whistle, but it's, it's like that your inner writer is a child. The more you bribe, the better. So they have this awesome thing called targets in Scrivener where you can say, okay, so my session target, I want to write 1,000 words in this session. And you put it off in the corner, and as the longer you write – the bar will move from red to orange to yellow to green. And when you're just to the point of, oh, my brain is dead. I can't do anymore. But it's almost green. Like, oh, I can write another hundred words. I can do it. <laughs> and it's so oddly satisfying to see the bar go green. So and there's, a, I mean, there's so much to Scrivener, but it's, that's kind of a summary. It, it really is a powerful tool. And I love that there are so many different tools for writers yeah. out there. Partially because I, I love this sense that some people, when they see a finished book, they think, oh, it just kind of came that way. It's like, you know, a child. It was like born. And <laughs> if only. the day it was born, it was there. But they don't think of, you know, the nine months of preparation or, <laughs> you know, the, the nine years of preparation that yeah. went into creating that. So how do you get through that process when it is it really isn't a straight beginning to end and there's so many different pieces and parts how do you approach that kind of chaos in a way that helps you 
structure your things correctly and make it to an end where you say, okay, yeah, I'm going to send this out. I'm going to get this published. How do, you, how do you make it through that process? You break it down. That's the biggest thing is, well, I guess two, two things. One, you break it into small pieces. It's like the, eating the elephant, you know, one bite at a time. You look at the whole thing and go, oh, I have to write a 90,000 word novel. This I could never do that. I couldn't write 500 words today. That's two pages, two double space pages. I could do that. Um, and so that you break it down into scenes or, or this is my goal for today, or I will sit down for 30 minutes even, depending on what, as long as you don't, you know, go on Facebook or whatever <laughs> during those minutes, yeah. which is why a word counts better for me. But um, so breaking it down into those manageable pieces, I can't do the whole thing today, but I can do this much. And then the second thing is recognizing it's not going to come out clean and beautiful and shiny. So the way I've described it, when I've, I've, I've taught teenagers at teen conferences and whatnot, um, and all my own children when they're panicking over a school paper, you know what? Let it be garbage at first. Let it come out. It doesn't have to be pretty. Just start anywhere. You don't sit there and say, oh, I don't know what my opening sentence is going to be. Start in the middle. It doesn't matter. Let it be, let it be completely sloppy. Um, so I've described it to, to, to my kids and, and other teenagers as the first draft, I'm making a blob of clay. And then revision comes in, and that's when I make it into a pretty piece of pottery. So I have to allow myself to have it be this ugly, gooey lump of nothingness, knowing it will. I can take it later and form it into something pretty. And just giving myself that permission, it doesn't have to be pretty yet. It's just a messy process. It is a completely messy process, and I am grateful that you can articulate that. I love that analogy. One of the things that's interesting about your writing is you write short stories as well as novels. So mm-hmm. is there a different approach to those formats or yeah. is it is it the same? It's you know, short stories are particularly challenging because they're because they're so short. Yeah. <laughs> I mean you have to, to you know, have so much in such a small space and you, you you can't have subplots and you can have a smaller cast and so for me, I've been doing short stories or, you know, the novella kind of thing for about five years now. So they're far easier now. When I first began, it was, you know, pulling hair. It was really hard. Um, and I would say that novels were much easier. Now, um, I can, I've done so many of, of the short stories. It's easier. And I can sit there and say, well, I, I can, if I have a good outline, I can write that relatively quickly. And then you can have that, again, it's the inner child going, oh, yay, reward, I finished something, woohoo. And it, it gets published quicker and all of it. The turnaround is, is great. So, But one thing for me is I've been part of the this anthology series, and each anthology has a theme. So I go into each short story thinking ahead to how I'll, how will I approach that theme. So we had um, one that was a road trip. So, what, okay, what kind of road trip will I talk about? And so then my brain starts going in that direction. We have a fairy tale one coming up. And so which fairy tale do I want to tell? Um, it's largely empowering, ironically. And there was a point where I thought that don't put me in a box. That's, you know, that that's tough. But on the other hand, if, you know, if I say, hey, draw, draw a picture of what, you know, but if I say, draw a picture of a hippopotamus playing in a river, then you, you have a direction to go. And so in some weird ways, the smaller the box, the more creative I can get. Um, because it's like, well, how can I do something really cool with this, this, these limitations within these parameters? So it's, it's been empowering in a lot of ways. So as we close up our conversation today, tell us a little bit, what is the most challenging part of writing for you? What, what do you find the most challenging? 
Oh, goodness. Yeah, ironically, it's probably the business side of things because that's not the fun part. That's, you know, it's like, oh, taxes. Yay. Oh, I have to, you know, promote this. Oh, I have to deal with, you know, it's just that's that's not fun. You know, that kind of thing. That's probably some of the hardest stuff when you have to come back to reality. And I don't just get to escape in my own little world. I have to worry about numbers and, you know, just the the day to day boring stuff. (laughs) That is so honest, and I appreciate appreciate you saying that because I, you know, a lot of people when you get to this level, they forget how much of that is. It's a career and it's a business, and you're yeah. you're working to develop and make money in a way that is going to help sustain yeah, it, other parts of your it's life. It's no longer just a yeah. hobby, something yeah. for fun. It yeah. does become work, so you have to find, remind yourself. You know what? I love this. This there, I, I can enjoy this, even if it's it's quote-unquote work. And that's the funny thing. There have been so many times where um, I sit there and go, oh, I don't want to write today. And, you know, you just all of these procrastination things kick in and oh, no, no. And then I sit down and I, okay, I will just write for 15 minutes. And nine minutes in, I'm like so in the zone. And, you know, I finish the scene and I'm on like a high. It's like, that was awesome. It's, it's better than a roller coaster. Why don't I do that more often? And in my head, I know how much I enjoy it, but it's just getting started that is so hard. Because again, even my, my, my youngest is this great artist, um, but she'll go, you know, weeks or months at a time without drawing. And then when she gets back to like, oh, I should probably practice again because I have this class coming up. She'll draw for an hour and go, mom, I forgot how much I love this. I forgot how fun it is. And everything she says, I'm like, yeah, I can relate. That's just what it's like with my writing. Well, thank you so much, Annette, for opening your writing world to us and helping us see how you can engage in this really fun and amazing profession. Thank you so much. Thank you. Author Annette Lyon talking about what she goes through in writing her books and how sometimes the hardest part is just getting started. We finish up the show with a book review from Gene Nelson, director of the Provo, Utah Library. He introduces Egg, a picture book written and illustrated by Kevin Henkes. You know, as I was just thinking, as I cracked open this little picture book that's written for the youngest child, it's very much like the cracks of these eggs because it just opens up with this beautiful, beautiful watercolor. I think Kevin is a marvelous illustrator and author for, for the youngest child. And in this story, we have four different eggs, and they're all different colors, and three of them start cracking. But the fourth just stays uncracked. And before we know it, we have three little chicks that come out of those eggs. They happen to match the color of the eggs in, in beautiful watercolor pastel colors with pink and yellow and blue. But the green egg continues to sit uncracked. And they all say goodbye, the three chicks, and they wander off and fly away. And meanwhile, the reader and the rest of us are waiting, 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 waiting for this green egg to hatch. Well, finally, the three chicks come back, and they're wondering what's going on with this fourth egg. And a lot of this is told with some writing, but then some of it is told very much in a wordless fashion. Almost a graphic novel in a comic form with a lot of panels. And finally, they're sitting there listening, and they start... They get very proactive, and they start pecking on the egg from the outside of the egg because it's not working. The egg isn't hatching. They peck, 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 peck. And we have a whole page of pecking until finally the egg starts cracking. 
and out comes a little baby alligator. And these three chicks, birds, their eyes get huge, and they fly away from this alligator. They know better than that. Well, poor little baby alligator is very lonely. He doesn't have any friends, and and Kevin used the words alone and sad and lonely, miserable. And he's pretty miserable, and the three chicks come back, and they circle around and start to wonder, okay, could this work out? And the pink one lands on the alligator, then comes the yellow one, then comes the blue one, and they're all sitting on the back of the alligator, and they're friends. And then they start, he takes them down the water, gives them a little ride, and as they're kind of looking at the sunset, they see the sun going down. And all four of them see the sun going down. And then they start wondering about that sun. And it kind of changes its shape from round to a little bit oblong like an egg. And we're wondering, is that the end of the day? And, of course, that egg then hatches uh, a beautiful peach-colored chick. It's just a perfect little book. Uh, very soft and quiet. Not a lot of action, but it's just a very, very quiet book about friendship and uh, being patient. I love it. Gene Nelson, director of the Provo, Utah Library, reviewing Egg, a picture book written and illustrated by Kevin Henkes. We'll look forward to more Young Reader book reviews in the future. For a full collection of book reviews, Check out the World's Awaiting Book Review link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.